0: Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker. I am the host and creator of the Bible in Life. Glad you're joining me on this episode. We are going to do something different than what we typically do on this episode. I am going to have a conversation with John Marriott, the co-author with Sean McDowell of a new book entitled Set Adrift. And the subject we're really going to talk about is the subject of Deconstructing Your Faith, and this book, Set Adrift, wrestles with that question, wrestles with why people do it, and how people can deconstruct their faith in such a way that they don't leave the faith altogether, but continue to be faithful followers of Jesus. Super important conversation, super important topic, because it seems like in our current cultural mode, deconstruction is becoming increasingly common among young people. Why is that? And how can we be good guides in helping people deconstruct without, at the same time, deconverting? That's the subject of the book, and that is also the subject of this conversation. So I hope you find this helpful to understanding why it is that people deconstruct and how you can help people continue to faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of that experience so without further ado here's my conversation with john Marriott. Uh john welcome to the bible and life podcast great and, great to be here thank you yeah yeah glad you're here um just give the audience just a brief kind of intro to who you are and kind of your passions and wh- what you're what you're all about so that they know who we're talking to today
1: Okay. Um, I'm a Canadian transplant living in Los Angeles, uh, teaching part-time at Biola University, and uh, I teach at Whittier Christian High School as well. Uh, I have a PhD in intercultural studies. My dissertation and uh, my area of interest is in people who once identified as Christians and now say they don't believe it at all anymore. And sometimes the process that people go through and end up leaving the faith is termed a deconstruction. Sometimes people will say deconstructed right out of the faith. And I'm interested in why does that happen? What does the process look like? Uh, where's the point of no return if such a point exists? And uh, what can we do as uh, as the church to help people think well who are going through those uh, that process?
0: Yeah, no, that's good. And that This book that uh, really prompted me to want to have you on the podcast called Set Adrift that you co author with Sean McDowell is really wrestling with that, um, and yet sort of in a a very specific vein. So for this book, Set Adrift, who really is the target audience for this
1: book? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, The target audience primarily would be high school students, college students who have not really wrestled maybe very much with what they with what they believe. Uh, and the wrestling that they might go through isn't so much whether or not Jesus is the way, but they're, they might start to question what does the way of Jesus look like? And what I mean by that is there there are lots of young people that Sean and I encounter, either at the university or the high school level or at different speaking engagements. And they'll say things like, hey, can I talk to you? I'm deconstructing my faith. And when we ask what they mean by that, there, there are some who say, um, you know, I'm I'm leaving the faith. That's really just a shorthand for I don't believe this anymore. But there's a lot who will say, I think that Christianity is true, but I'm not really sure what it's supposed to look like anymore, because it just seems maybe uh, intolerant. It does seem homophobic, misogynistic. Think of any negative adjective that you can to label Christianity with. And this has kind of seeped into their thinking through the culture. And now they're starting to wonder I I do think that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but I'm not sure what his religion should look like. Yeah. Uh, I go to a particular church, I have from a different a particular denomination, and um I've been raised this way, but I'm not sure that this is what Christianity is supposed to look like. So I'm going to now deconstruct and by that they're meaning I'm gonna pull apart what's been given to me and I'm going to look at it in a piecemeal kind of a fashion and then put together back a faith that and this is where it gets tricky either is I'm more comfortable with or seems truer to me or hopefully lines up more with what I see in the Bible. Yeah. Right? And so that's the and 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 it's almost like a a preemptive strike if you will. Um, because our assumption is is that more and more young people are going to go, are going to go through this process because of the culture that we live in. We want to be able to say, we think you're going to go through this. Here are some guardrails and some guides to help you as you think about this, because our concern isn't that you end up right back where you started, but that you end up in some orthodox historic Christian understanding of the faith. And yeah. many who go through the process just don't. Right. So that, right. in a nutshell, is the target audience.
0: Yeah. No. And that's really, yeah, it's unique in that regard. It's not an apologetics work trying to convince people who maybe are skeptics and don't believe. Correct. It's still for people who, like you said, think Jesus is the way. They they're just really wrestling with. But I don't know that I want it to look like the one that I was handed by my parents or the faith tradition I grew up in. And and so it is. It's sort of a unique, a unique angle on what this topic. Um, and you, you alluded to it in what you said there, when you said it's, I, you think more and more young people are going to go through this experience because of culture. So what are some of the the contributing factors to that? Cause it seems like that to me too. It seems like there's more young people than used to. I mean, when we were younger, maybe we wrestled with things. We wanted to make our faith our own or some of that sort of stuff, but the language now seems far more, uh, abandoning wholesale certain chunks of what they grew up with, and you're wanting to help them be a little more intentional and thoughtful in how they do that. So what what is it necessarily that in our cultural context that maybe is causing young people to, to kind of deconstruct more fully than maybe they used to?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a, a number of factors that play into this. There's definitely a shift that's taken place. Uh, Over the last several decades, that's really starting to come to fruition now, as we've seen it work its way through the academy, then down through the arts and the entertainment and then into popular culture. And then it just sort of seeps into uh, the air that we breathe, culturally speaking, and that squeezes and shapes us into its mold. One of those is that um, whatever is out there in the world, the cultural values and the norms that are being promoted in our society it eventually shapes us at a gut level, and we feel certain things. I, I, the, the NHL, uh, this is a side note, but the NHL just came out and said, no more pride jerseys, no more pride tape on hockey sticks during warm-ups. And uh, a commentator wrote back and pushed back on that and said that, uh, and, and his, ra- or his rationale for why was that he says at a gut level, at an intuitive level, at an emotional level, we believe that this ban by the NHL is wrong. And I think he's right when he says that it's at the gut level, the intuitional level, that most of the work is being done because what's out there in the world influences how we feel on a gut level. And then eventually over time, that causes us to have a different way of looking at things or hold different beliefs. So if the culture is continually moving in a way that is uh further and further away from a historic traditional uh, Judeo-Christian uh, moral foundation, to the point where it is now becoming uh, almost counterculture, or or looked at as uh, intolerant and and negative to hold on to a Christian a traditional Christian ethic, especially in sexuality. That will eventually form kids and form all of us at a at, at a gut level. I had one young man say to me at a Christmas event. A number of years ago, after I spoke, he said, can you answer this question for me? And I said, what is it? He said, what do you think about gay marriage? I said, well, well, tell me what you think about gay marriage. I wanted to know where he was coming from. And he said, "Uh, up here, I think it's wrong. But down here, I I don't feel that it's wrong. I feel that it should be allowed. And and, and unless someone had the time and the energy to really pour into him, and unless his countercultural uh, you know, youth group and church environment was persuasive enough to kind of counteract the formation that he's getting from culture. Eventually, he will acquiesce and start to believe that these that 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 is okay. That's one huge piece I think that's that's going on is that 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 the traditional biblical uh, ethic on on a number of issues is really butting up against what's going on in the culture. So that's reason number one. Did you want to jump in and respond? Well, I, I, <clears throat> well, I was really
0: curious. Uh, just to, on the, the example you gave, you said unless somebody you know engages with this particular young man, he'll eventually acquiesce to what he feels in his gut. How would someone engage with that person like that? Like, what what would someone do to be helpful? What kind of conversations would they have?
1: Well, for sure, there needs to be conversations that are going to uh, be directed at. His reason and his thinking, right? I mean, he needs to have have some of those. But I think he is shaped and formed by the culture that he is immersed in, and that we're all immersed in. None of us can escape it. But I think that the church has to act as a countercultural formation. It needs to be sort of a, a secondary uh, kind of a, a, a authoritarian, uh, authoritative, authoritative community that, by being really loving and being really gracious and and merciful and speaking truth can act as a counterweight at the gut level to what's going on in the culture that's influencing all of us at, at a gut level. Because if you're part of a, a group, uh, let's say a, a, a church organization, and that church organization or that church is countercultural in its traditional values, right? It so doesn't really fit in. The culture looks at it as intolerant, bigoted, etc. If you're part of the group, but the group is loving to you and gracious to you and kind to you and helps other people and is filled with people who are thoughtful, non-judgmental, who are are, are reasonable people, that acts as a plausibility structure for you. That's right? yeah. sort, of, sort of a term that Peter Berger, the sociologist, coined and says that hard to hold beliefs uh, as an island or as an individual person, but when you're surrounded by a group of people, and that group of people is you admire and that you like and that there's goodness there it makes it easier for you to maintain beliefs that maybe don't uh, line up with what's going on in the broader culture as a whole so I, I think just being immersed in a in the church and in a church that um it, it, you know, it so let me give you one really practical example my kids love my youth leader the youth leaders at our church they put on events that are fun, engaging. They spend time with them throughout the week. They minister to them. They speak biblical truth into their lives. My kids are willing to hear the biblical truth because of the relationships that they have with yeah. these people who they really like, who they see as smart, who they see as loving and caring and gracious. And 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 so I think that's where the formation needs to, to be happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've said for years as a pastor that churches need to create space and make it safe for these kinds of questions to be asked, real questions, what I'm really feeling, so that that they don't just pretend to believe everything they're they're supposed to believe, but, but they know they can articulate, well, I know this is what we're supposed to believe, but it doesn't feel right. So, and they can have those conversations. And I do think churches need to create a relational context that's warm and gracious and loving and safe to have real, honest, sometimes even difficult conversations about some of these topics. And I don't know that we've always done that well in the church. But
1: right. I, I And it's really that. hard, right? I mean, it yeah. really, really is a difficult thing to do. Churches are, are supposed to be doing a multitude of different things, and keeping all of those balls in the air is challenging. So I don't want to ever uh, sound as though I'm criticizing the church for, for for not being those kinds of communities. But in our best moments, that's what we should be striving for.
0: Yeah. And even in our Christian homes and Christian families, we should— you know, teach parents how to create that environment in their home and in their family. I
1: think. You yeah. Know? Oh, I agree a hundred percent because the attitudes that we express in those offhand moments, when maybe what's deep in our heart comes out of our mouth, uh, because we've seen a commercial for the maybe the fifth commercial in a row that has either a a trans person in it or a gay person in it or promoting some biblical, unbiblical sort of view of marriage and sexuality. And then some expression that comes out of our mouth that's not guarded, that's not gracious, that's not kind. It can be truthful, but it just better be spoken with grace and truth, because those are the kinds of experiences that kids point to looking back. They'll say things, and I've heard this from lots of kids, they'll say things like, Oh, yeah, my parents hated gay people. Well, I'm sure their parents actually didn't hate gay people, but maybe they expressed frustration and anger and irritability that gets interpreted that way. So I I, I think we just have to be really careful as we speak biblical truth to do it graciously so that we don't communicate a different message for how we're expressing the truth.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's very important and very wise. So culture, you said the culture that we just breathe yes. is shaping our values and shaping our gut. That what what else would would you say is contributing to maybe more youth going this direction?
1: I think in, uh, another one is that we've lost this sort of sense that there is a broad story of reality that's objectively true. Um, you know, fifty years ago or more. Uh, there was at least kind of a general uh, understanding or operating principle that was operating in the background. That yes, there are lots of competing stories of the of the nature of reality, but they're not all right, and some are closer to the truth than the others. But um, not everyone is, is correct. You can believe what you want to believe, but but you're wrong, um, and I'm right, or I'm right, and or you know I'm wrong, and you're right. We've really lost this idea that there's an objective structure in nature to reality. And and, and so now young people are starting to, to say, whether it's conscious or not, look, um, this these rules that I'm supposed to follow and these c- categories I'm supposed to live within, these concepts that are being defined for me, I've been born into a world, all it is is filled with competing uh, stories of the truth of reality. And they all conflict with one another, whether it's Marxism, Christianity, uh naturalism you name it um or the and they all have different definitions of what it means to be male or female or just or unjust or what's good and what's bad i'm starting to come to the conclusion that there's no objective truth out there that there's just all these different collective hunches these social constructions that tell us how the world is but but really those are just creating realities they're not coming into contact with reality, discovering it, and then telling young you know us as young people, I'm speaking as a young person now, um, uh, the truth. and And so why should I, if I have certain feelings and and ideas and an identity, why should I conform myself to these social constructs yeah. and 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 limit who I am? In fact, what I need to be is authentic to myself. And so the highest virtue, uh, it, it at least seems, uh, and, and often operating off conscious, the conscious sort of radar, is that that young people feel that they that they need to be authentically who they are to speak their truth, and not necessarily conform to the ways that other people think. And so you're handed this, you know, this version of Christianity, and I was handed one, and you were handed one. And I just went, oh, it's either true or it's false. But I never said, well, let's see what parts of it line up with my values. And let's see what parts I can accept and reconstruct so that my faith is an authentic representation of who I am.
0: Right, right.
1: But that is what is, is happening with a lot of what's going on today. Sometimes people call it expressive individualism, that, yeah. that that there's no real truth, big truth out there. So you need to just live your truth. Yeah. And uh, that applies to everything.
0: So if you again, if you were having a conversation with a young person steeped in that, you know, w- would you just would you just begin with helping them think through what truth is and how to, to know it? Or how what would you how would you address that?
1: Yeah, sometimes I, I will say, you know, um no one no one ever, I don't think, I mean, I'm sure it's, this the phrase has been uttered, but 10 years ago, no one ever said speak your truth. They might have said, well, you have your belief, and that's what you believe, and it's true for you. But no one ever said, speak your truth, that you are the definer of what truth is. And and, and really, your emotions and your psychological, uh, you know, your feelings define what's ultimately true for you. And I think I would want to at least sort of bring that to the surface, some of these things that are operating on a presuppositional level. And maybe point that out, and then, yeah. uh, and then talk about you know truth. I think I think that that has to be the intellectual component needs to be addressed. However, I think that that what needs to be done first is is bringing this to the conscious awareness and saying, hey, look, this is how you've already been squeezed into the mold. I I watched a, a movie, the Taylor Swift uh, Miss Americana on Netflix uh, the other night. And there's a section in there where she starts talking uh, about, you know, being her own person and how she's not going to be squeezed into this mold into that mold. And I was just thinking, you're being like you are you have just been squeezed into the mold <laughs> right. that you don't realize you've been squeezed in because every talking point that she raised was a direct result of her being squeezed into this expressive individualistic, mentality of, of how she should be living and how she shouldn't be, um, um, uh, restricting herself to what other people think and the views of society. And, and, um, uh, of course there's a place for that as you mature and as you grow and realizing it, yes, you have to be your own person, but, um, it was just really ironic to me that as she's saying, I'm not going to be X and let X be, you know, be squeezed into this mold. That's exactly what she was expressing. It's yeah, exactly.
0: Think we're being so free and so true to ourselves and so individualistic, and really all we're doing is just embodying the, yes. the values and the cultures of the around us. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I was That's just right. doing a uh, actually a, a little apologetic seminar at a church out west of town where I live, and and I I, I started the afternoon with with. How many of you have heard the phrase, You know, live your truth? All the kids raised their hands, Those was teenagers, and and uh, tell me what you think about that phrase. Uh, that may have been the first time they were asked to reflect on the phrase, but it didn't take long before they thought, I don't think that works very well. So give me an example. And they started giving me examples one after another of how it wouldn't work very well as they started reflecting on it. So I do think raising it to a level of consciousness and asking them to reflect on it, it's like, Well, you can see plenty of places where it wouldn't work. If you think that you can fly, it's not going to work very well, no matter how hard you try to live that out as your truth, right? They can start to think of examples. Well, then we can begin to boil it down to, all right, so there's got to be some reality out there that limits us, confines us, directs us, and we have to be able to get somewhat in touch with it. I I do think that's terribly important for, for people to begin to realize I'm not just free to make up whatever I want to make up and live my truth.
1: Yes, and, and yet that's the message, that's the script they're given to live by uh, from almost every adolescent teen movie that that they watch. Yeah. Um, yep. If you were to watch uh, Turning Red by Pixar, mm-hmm. the first five minutes of that movie, she just talks about how she's her own person. She does what she wants, that she's not going to do what other people tell her that she has to do. You have to honor your parents, but don't honor them too much. Otherwise, you might not honor yourself. That's actually a quote from the beginning of, of the movie. Huh. And in almost all of the, the, the most recent Disney movies and the, and, and the Pixar movies that are directed at teens or who have teens as that star in it, uh, the hero's journey is no longer the historic hero's journey where they're overcoming some danger at great risk to themselves in order to free other people or to help other people. The the hero's journey now is overcoming other people's expectations of you so that you can be authentically yeah. who you are, and yeah. authentic your own values. And if you watch High School Musical, you'll see a really good example of this where the two stars in the movie, one is a math whiz and the other is a basketball star, but deep down, they both want to be in the High School Musical. But they're both being told that they can't be in the High School Musical because you're a math whiz and we need you on the math team and you're an amazing basketball player and we need you on the basketball team. Parents, friends, friend groups at school, social cliques are all putting all this pressure on these two kids. But they end up becoming the hero because they overcome that to be true to themselves and be in the movie. Now, do I think it's a terrible movie? No, I don't think it's a terrible movie. It has entertainment value. But I think that watching movies with this eye and being able to point out to young people to say here's the script that you're being told to live by i mean for goodness sakes burger king's slogan these days is bk have it your way you rule <laughs> right very explicit <laughs> and 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 everything in our culture uh, technologically speaking reinforces this idea that we 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 don't have to conform to an objective standard that's out there like that, there really is such a thing as male or female, or you know, right. true goodness or true beauty. Um, that we can we can kind of conform reality to us because technology allows us or, or or tricks us into thinking that we can construct the world. The latest phone that comes that's come out from Google Pixel, the advertisement just shows the latest ad. If you see it online uh, on TV, um uh, it shows how you can take yourself there's a guy who's jumping, jumping up yep I've seen and, it. and you saw it, right and he jumps up and then and he and the picture snaps and then he t- puts his fingers on the screen he enlarges himself and then he raises himself up so it looked like he jumped about 10 feet higher than he really jumped and then he clicks the button and there's the picture yep so you can alt you can augment reality now and create your own reality And so the blurring between what's true and and out there and what's the world that we create is becoming more and more blurred. Like We don't even have to follow the the typical cycles of of winter, spring, summer, fall when it comes to growing vegetables and fruit anymore. You don't have to plant in the spring and hope that they come up in the fall because technology allows us to do this year round. So we used to think there was used to be very clear that there was a structure to reality. Not so much any anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's helpful. And those two obviously go hand in hand, right? Like, yes, so the culture that we swim in is leading more and more youth to doing this, and then the culture that we swim in is this: you got to be true to you, you got to live your own truth, culture, and that just you know really exacerbates that. So yes. So yeah. you mentioned, uh, and it's one of the things that comes up in the book is so the importance and the need for guides and guardrails. Uh, let's start with guardrails. What do you mean by guardrails? As far as okay, if people are going to de- deconstruct but not deconvert, what are guardrails and how do they help?
1: All right. Well, when we talk about deconstruction in the book, we're aware that there are multiple uses of the word that that's float, that are floating around out there. Right? There's sort of this this academic usage of the term that traces back to Jacques Derrida. Um, no one is really using it in the way that he talked about it. Uh, maybe sort of related. But there are sort of two versions that are floating around in the in the Christian, uh, in the blogosphere and, and online. And, and that would be those people who say, I'm deconstructing. And what they're doing is they're saying, I'm going to be the ultimate authority and the criterion for what is true and what I'm willing to accept. And then there are those who are saying, I, I, I want to align with what I think that the Bible teaches, and I'm going to rethink what I've been handed as Christianity. Okay, so both of those there's both of those going on, and both of them use the same word for deconstruction. as we mentioned earlier, we're using, we're talking to the to the second group. And um, we want to say to those people, hey, we think that it can be helpful and good for you to rethink what it is that you you believe. In fact, you you probably should do that if you're a follower of Jesus and as you get a little bit older and you become intellectually self-aware, you want to be obedient to him. And so you need to maybe go back and revisit some of the things that you, you were taught um, and, and ask, is this reflected in in scripture? But we're concerned because a lot of what we think motivates young people to start heading down this road is they start to feel this incongruity between what they see in the Bible and what they're hearing in culture. And then maybe there's almost a way to say, I'd like to have it both ways. I'd like to find a faith that I'm comfortable with, but I also want to be biblical. And the danger in doing that is that you end up in some sort of version of Christianity that doesn't necessarily look like historic Orthodox Christianity. Now, we're careful. We try and not use the word progressive because we don't want to broad brush everyone who calls himself a progressive Christian as someone who's not a a true, genuine believer in Jesus. But, But there is something to the term that does seem to push the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian understanding throughout the last 2,000 years of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we want to say, be very careful, because if you if you don't have someone who's helping you think through the process, you may not only end up there, but that might not be the knot at the end of the rope that you think that it's going to be that allows you to stay a Christian. It might end up just being a halfway house for you to end up just leaving the faith altogether, yeah, yeah. we want to we we'll remind um, some people, uh, uh, we want to remind uh, folks that there are guardrails. there are boundaries to what you can justifiably say is a Christian understanding of the nature of reality. And um we lay some of those out in in the book,
0: yeah, yeah. and you're <clears throat> I, some of the things you focus on are some of the classic, Historic creeds of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, and some of those sorts of things, and at least that provides sort of a here is here here are the parameters that you can you can play in as you rethink things, but you got to stay within these parameters, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then the other one is guides, um, and uh, I think maybe you guys have a little bit broader than this, but as far as an individual, a person. To come alongside somebody who's in that position, they're they're rethinking their faith. They don't want to leave it. They just are like, I don't know if all the things I was handed, you know, from my Christian heritage is is quite right. They need a guide. They need someone to be a conversation partner. So what what makes a good guide? What makes a person really helpful to somebody as they wrestle with that? What are some traits and
1: practices that are made for good guides? Yeah, that's such a good question, and it's such a hard question because I almost think that the guide that we pick is is determined by where we want to end up. (laughs) Right? Um, So, you know, Sean and I would say, well, what makes a good guide is someone who has a handle um, on, you know, uh, solid, sound, historical Christian Orthodox teaching. We would say that someone who is a good guide is someone who is not necessarily bound to a particular church tradition, but is very committed to the lordship of Jesus Mm -hmm. and wanting people to be his disciples and um, is willing to, you know, is, is someone of character, someone who is gracious someone who uh, maybe has a sort of a big tent mentality, but yet recognizes that tent has to have borders, someone who wants to help you think through the process well, but also at the beginning of the process says these, you know, if we're going to do it within these boundaries and the boundaries being historic Christian orthodoxy, the Lordship of Jesus, and the authority of scripture. Now, if someone who, who might be listening? I could see them saying, "Well, that's what you think a good guide is <laughs> because you have a pl- a destination that you want these young people to get to. but what if what if someone is you know wrestling with all those very same questions that you are 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 committed to, then that wouldn't be a good guide for them, yeah. right? Like maybe they need one of the a, a deconstruction coach on the internet, <laughs> which there are many of. And, and that would be, the, and that's why I say your question is a really good one, but it's a really hard one to answer because I'm telling you what I think a good guide is that will allow you to land in a historic Orthodox Christian position.
0: Right.
1: Um, and if that's what you're looking for, then those are some of the characteristics that, that I mentioned. But if you're putting it all on the table and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm rethinking the whole thing, um, then I think that. To be honest, um, where you will probably end up will not be in a historic Christian Christian Orthodox position because um, there probably is something deeper driving the deconstruction, and it's not a willingness to submit your own autonomy to the lordship of Jesus and the authority of Scripture.
0: Yeah, but in view of the target audience of this book, for what you guys are aiming at in our churches, right? Like where we're trying to help young people really be faith-filled and faithful disciples of Jesus, even if that means they don't stay in the tradition that they grew up with, the kind of guide you describe is a good guide.
1: Absolutely. You would be a great guide.
0: (laughs) No, I, I, I mean, I think it's important for people to realize, you know, that I also, one of the things you didn't explicitly mention, but I think it was implied in some of the things you said is, um, resist telling and, and, asking questions that's implied in the graciousness and the helping them think it through so often we want to just we want to keep them in our camp rather than keep them with Jesus and so we we immediately in, a, in our I don't know fearfulness our need to control we we start giving them all the answers rather than asking questions to get them to think but if they're, if they're still committed to Jesus then being gracious and thoughtful and all right, here's the, here are the guardrails. Here's the boundaries we're going to play in. But we got some freedom in there. And so to let them think and let them ask their questions and listen. I mean, I think those things are terribly important, you know.
1: I, I have a, um, a friend who told me, he said, you know, my son came to me after a year of university. And he said... He said, now, I know that Christians differ on this, by the way, and and so I'm not taking a position. I'm not advocating for anything here. And even saying that, I know that maybe I will step on on some toes. But his son came home from university and said, Dad, I don't believe that the universe was created in six literal days about 10,000 years ago. And his dad said to him, "Okay." And he said, well, wait a minute. Don't you think I have to believe that? And he said, no, I believe that. I think that that's a good interpretation of what the Bible says. But do I think you have to believe that in order to be a Christian? That you have to affirm that? And he said, no, I I don't think that. And years later, his, his son wrote him a letter for Father's Day and pointed back to that day and said, I can point back to the time where you influenced my faith the most. And it was that day when you told me what I didn't have to believe. And he said, and if you had told me I had to have believed it, I don't think I would be a Christian today. Yeah. Yeah. And then, courage uh,
0: just to create space to think a little differently is so important. Yeah. I had a young man reach out to me, um, <clears throat> and he'd grown up in a Christian home, gone to a Christian school, a, a really good Christian school, really forced kids to think. His dad had been an elder in several churches. Now he's in his mid-20s. He's married. He's got kids at home. And he's been reading stuff on the internet, reading books, and he's starting to really question his faith and wonder about some things. And he shared, I'm beginning to wonder about some of this stuff, and I don't really feel like I have questions or answers to some of these questions. He shared that with his dad. His dad panicked, immediately brought in an apologetics expert, sat him down, and he didn't even get to ask his questions. The guy just dumped all the reasons Christianity is true on him, and it, it was less than helpful, right?
1: Less <laughs> and, than helpful.
0: And he... Uh, it didn't mean he 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 walked away from that like he didn't even know if he wanted to be a christian married to a gal you know who's also a pastor's daughter and she so she's just like you just need to talk to John and she directed him my way and we started having coffee and he would bring his notebook with his questions and i would listen for the first few weeks mostly i just listened and asked follow up questions and listened and asked follow up questions and listened and asked follow up questions and and i just kept saying well the key thing is jesus so let's keep looking at jesus after about six, eight weeks, he shut his notebook, he looked at me, and said, I think I'm good. <laughs> he didn't believe everything, you know, that his dad believed, he didn't believe everything maybe I, I should believe. But when it came to the person of Jesus and his resurrection, he was no, I'm solid on that. And from there he can work out the other questions, you know, and, and yes. start to explore it. And I think that's just so important for people. Yep.
1: I, I agree. I think that's that that's crucial, mm-hmm. crucial in, in yeah. dealing with these kinds of things. And I I I think you know, it would be helpful if someone wrote a book. On, on how to respond when your kids raise these questions. My daughter said to me a year ago after my dad passed away, she was 11, and she said, Dad, I know this is going to hurt your feelings, and I don't want to tell you, but I don't think I believe in heaven. And at that moment, I felt like pangs of anxiety inside of me because you know, just intuitively I realized all that that would entail if I right. really lived it out, What that, what, what that would mean. And and I, I was panicking inside. Uh, and then I was like, okay, okay, you're prepared for this. Because I thought it through. <laughs> I said, what happens when my kids come? And so I said, you know, uh, I went through my checklist. I thanked her for telling me and for being feeling like she could share it with me. And um, I uh, said, well, can you share a little bit more and explain? And then she did. And then eventually it became clear that it wasn't that she didn't believe in heaven, but for the first time, she was really thinking about it, couldn't really conceive it. Where was her grandfather? That just seems so crazy. Yeah. And she didn't have language to express that. But, you know, I, I knew that the next step needed to be to express unconditional love for her, regardless of what she believes, in yeah. order to stay in that conversation as time goes by. Because you're in it for the long haul, mostly with your kids and close friends and family, and trying to bring in the apologist to answer all the questions immediately. Yeah. probably always
0: backfires. Yeah. Almost always backfires. So uh, just to wrap up books called set a drift. If, if you could say, here's the win for the book, like if this book achieved everything we set out for it to achieve, it was a home run. Right. And what, what's the win for set a drift?
1: The win would be that we would provide a resources for, a resource for parents to help them think through, help them understand what their children are, are experiencing and why they think the way that they do, what this impulse that they have is to, to rethink what they believe. And for young people, it would be to kind of expose them to some of the factors and the reasons why they are really questioning their faith, um, how they can go about doing so in a way that avoids some of these real significant pitfalls and without stepping on any of the 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 minds that might destroy their faith, so that they can come out on the other side, not necessarily with a faith that looks exactly like they were raised in, but one that is um, orthodox in its beliefs and that has uh, a passion for for Jesus.
0: Very good, very good. You've written several books related to this subject. Um, yeah. And you got a handful of resources. Where can people find some of the your books and your resources?
1: Thanks for asking. Uh, My website is my name John J O H N Marriott, like the hotel. Two R's, two T's. dot org. Okay. And on there, uh, you can find. There's a section that says for those who are concerned they're losing their faith. So thinking through that, not so much apologetics, but just asking good questions and and and. Some reading on, you know, on on why it's not a bad thing to rethink. But here are some of the errors that you want to avoid if you're trying to hold on to your faith but still having intellectual integrity. Then there's a section for those trying to understand why people walk away from their their faith, mostly parents. And then there's a final section that is uh, testimonies and and podcasts of people who left but eventually came back, so that people can find uh, some encouragement. And then there's a link to the various books that I've written too.
0: Very cool. That's good. Well, thanks for being on the Bible in Life podcast, John. Appreciate it. And hopefully uh, this book achieves the objective that you guys set out for it. Thank you very much. All right. Once again, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible in Life podcast. Pray it's helpful to you as you wrestle with how to encourage others in their faith and faithfulness to Jesus. As always, the Bible in Life is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry. It's made possible by your generous support. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it. I look forward to talking with you again next week.